Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everyone to today's episode of Truth. And today's guest, we have a very special guest, Sam Livingston. He's actually the co-founder of Truth. And, you know, Sam's former Marine, and he's he's had a long career. He actually was a lieutenant of the Cleveland Fire Academy, where he taught new cadets. And he was also a volunteer and part-time paramedic. And, you know, he's gone on and accomplished many things. And, you know, he's now into the Realty Group and he's growing his team with EXP Realty in Medina, Ohio. Welcome, Sam. How are you doing this afternoon? Hey, I'm great, man. How about yourself? I'm blessed. And, you know, you, you got you got such an extensive career. I was trying to squeeze it all in there real quick. <laughs> but uh, so let's kind of, I guess, start at the beginning as far as I, I, I know that you know, your childhood, you kind of grew up poor, you know, in a poor home where it was very racist and a very abusive environment. And that's actually huge to talk about in the progression of the successes you've tasted and, you know, that in which you share with others in your mentorship and guidance leadership on other individuals too, on how to overcome certain adversities and things like that. And actually what kind of drove your passions into the careers and everything that you've selected. So, I mean, do you want, you don't have to go too much in detail, but you want to talk about, you know, your childhood that kind of led into your passions today? Yeah. So uh, growing up, I mean, we did, we grew up, I, I would like to hear when people say we grew up poor, but we didn't know it. Well, <laughs> we grew up poor and we, we were certain of it. So um, I, uh, we moved around a good bit, but uh, we frequently lived in a trailer of some type or another. And at one point my dad actually had two trailers. Uh, it was a double wide that didn't match. So like the, you know, we just pulled anyway, we were very poor, grew up in a, a poor part of Florida. Um, I mean, and it was, there was a lot of mix of, of different types of people. There's very successful people there, but I grew up in a little town kind of outside of Ocala and a lot, a lot of people were uh, as destitute as we were uh, and some weren't, but um, that the poor part didn't matter as much. What I have seen is poverty can breed a lot of other problems. And one of those problems can be abuse. Um, it can it can be mental illness. Uh, and I do absolutely believe that mental illness can be um, caused by poverty. Um, I, I, I think that's what I saw growing up. My parents were not good people. Uh, they did not do the right thing very often. They were very abusive. They were very racist. They were very, they had that victim mentality. It was always someone else. And growing up i for a while i just thought that was normal you know i mean you're just in this lifestyle and that's what you see and that's what you're um exposed to the language the the um the physical abuse the mental abuse the all of those things it just becomes part of your life and then when you get old enough to where you can go wait a minute this isn't normal and i don't have to live like that that kind of changes a little bit of everything if you're able to see it. Now, I say that I was lucky because I had so many experiences that were bad. But when I was very young, I decided I was going to be a U.S. Marine. I don't know why. That's what I decided. I don't know what the drive was. I didn't even know anything about the Marine Corps. Um, there was a few things that kind of did drive it. One, my dad was in the Army. And uh, I wanted to be better than him, you know? So, uh, I, I always, and still believe that the Marine Corps is, is better than the army. And I hope that there's an army guy out there that says I'm full of crap because I think that you got to have that pride. But that was one of the 
things that I just always swallowed and said, I, I'm, I'm going to get out of this one day and it's going to be because I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And that is absolutely the truth. That if it wasn't for the Marine Corps um, at that very young age, I went to boot camp at 17 years old. I turned 18 in boot camp um, huh. at the rifle range, which is not a, it's not a fun place to turn 18 at. Um, nobody <laughs> celebrates it quite like the Marine Corps, but you know, if it wasn't for that, experience and going in the Marine Corps at such a young age, I venture to say I'd be in much worse condition than I am today. Awesome. And now with that being said, going into, I'm going to talk a little bit about the the parenting side here in a second, but so going into the Marine Corps, like a 17, I mean, and like you just said, it's the, it's a very unique way, I guess, of becoming that man, you know, or, you know, or woman in instances, but, uh, you know, it's <clears throat> how fast did the Marine Corps, since you always had that passion wanting to join, how fast did the Marine Corps become that family? I mean, how far I mean, how far in was it until you've seen that the camaraderie and camaraderie was something that I guess has been the missing link in your life? I, I will say that it, it does happen pretty quick, and I certainly wouldn't say it happens at boot camp. Uh, it doesn't happen at Marine Combat Training, which um, follows uh, boot camp. Um, doesn't happen at School of Infantry or any of those things to to a large extent. It, it happens, but there the purpose there is to kind of break you down and allow you to to rebuild the, the Marine Corps way, the, the having their vision and their mentality. So, um, and and remember, I was seventeen when I went in. I had never visited a dentist before in my life. I had only been to a doctor uh, in my recollection one time, and wow. that was because I had an, an appendectomy, had an emergency appendectomy. So, um, any other doctor visits or anything were like the school. This, we, we, I remember getting shots, uh, vaccinations, uh, mandatory ones, man, mandatory ones. So I had to go to school. But outside of that, we did not have a family physician. Uh, I had never seen the first time I ever had my teeth cleaned was 17 years old at boot camp. So. Wow. Ima you know, you can imagine that immaturity level. Um, my mom started me in, in school when I was very young. I was four and a half. I have a December birthday. So um, I started younger than average. And then for anybody who held their sons a year, which happens all the time, I held all three of my sons because I thought it would be better for them socially. Mm -hmm. um, so I graduated high school with uh, most of the guys that I'd gone to high school with were at least a year older than me and sometimes two years older than me. So, um, you know, a lot of times you think maybe that will jumpstart your maturity or you'll, you know, you'll be more mature because you're around more mature. But for me, that wasn't true. So going into the Marine Corps, that part of it was lost on me until probably I got to my first duty station. And then pretty immediate after that, uh, I, I was lucky enough to, uh, to be able to join a, a reconnaissance unit. I went through the rip and the screening and or the screening and then the rip and then um became very very close friends with some marines that i actually just saw uh, right before covid we met up in galveston for a reunion and and so that kind of camaraderie uh, irreplaceable and it does it it happens anytime and i always say that anytime there's adversity and what's a marine always a marine that absolutely that's you know it um the the funny thing is I always say misery loves company in a lot different um, context than what we <laughs> learn it. Misery loves company for a lot of people means someone's trying to drag you down. And I don't, I never looked at it that way. I said, misery loves company because if I'm in the company of other people who are going through the same misery as me and we can find some kind of camaraderie in it, then we can get through it. 
And I always looked for that, like who else is suffering with me and uh, what's their motivation? How are they getting, what can I do to help them help myself? And, and so those, that's what builds camaraderie. And speaking of the adversity, I know at the beginning of this broadcast, you were saying about how, you know, you always wanted to be a Marine. You don't know why or anything else like that, but you know, you want it to be better than your dad. And I also remember you stating, I don't some time ago, you stated about how when your father dropped you off at the bus station that he'd see you in a couple of weeks. Was it the proving him wrong that kind of drove you more? Or was it, you know, more along the sense of you trying to stick to yourself and proving to yourself? Or was it a combination of both? Initially, it was all about the rebellion, you know, and I think a lot of listen, I have three sons. I have a 19, a 17 and a 14 year old sons. So. Um, I understand the rebellion. And so for me, the fire in my belly was all rebellion. I was going to show him. I was going to like my dad was not. It wasn't that he was tough on us. It wasn't that he was he he was just he was me and he was not a good person. And he he would, you know, he called a, called me a panty waist. He called me a pussy and uh, not not for any specific thing that I had done, but I, I was very small. I graduated high school, 17 year old, 17 years old, six feet tall, 131 pounds. Wow. So um, he was dropping me off at the bus station late at night. Um, we caught, we took a bus from Ocala, Florida to a train. Um, I forgot. I think in Tampa or, Oh no, Jacksonville. And then the train from Jacksonville to Buford, South Carolina, and then another bus in. And the last thing that he told me was I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> so at that point it was all rebellion. I was just going to show him. And, and I like that because sometimes you need that. Like, you know, uh, how many people have succeeded and you, you can talk to a lot of very successful people and they succeeded in spite of other people. And, and I don't think that's the way to live your whole life, but certainly it's a great way to jumpstart something and, and say, you know what, I have a fire uh, to show you wrong. At some point that has to transition because I don't think that that, will sustain anything. So what ended up happening is that sustained me long enough to understand the camaraderie and understand the, um, what I was trying to do. And I fell in love with the Marine Corps at boot camp. You know, one of the things that I believe sets the Marine Corps apart from all the other services is the amount of history you learn about the Marine Corps. Um, and, and I've challenged other, other guys. I have some great friends in all services and, uh, I've challenged them to name some of the people like there's Marines, no Marine, I would question if anyone told me they were a Marine and couldn't sing, sing the Marines hymn. And, and that's not true of any other service that I'm aware of to, at the same level or percentage. And, and certainly there's guys that are absolutely in love with their service. But I think Marine Corps does do it. The attraction is a much smaller circle. People join the Marine Corps for when I went to uh, my recruiter. Uh, I was 17. I, actually, I was 16 and I had to come back when I was 17 and get parental consent and graduate high school. And they said, well, what job do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? They said, well, what do you want to do in the Marine Corps? I said, I want to be a Marine. And that's probably a recruiter's <laughs> um, greatest because they're like, oh, good. I can stick this idiot in that slot that I can't fill. Um, luckily, it all worked out for me. But I didn't even know that there were all these different job opportunities in the Marine Corps. I just wanted to go in the Marine Corps. Right. And so um, that rebellion got me into the Marine Corps. And then in the Marine Corps, I kind of fell in love with the history of it. And I fell in love with the understanding of how, um, how those men really formed a lot of the way our country uh, became, 
you know, one of the great, greatest, not one of the, it is the greatest right. country on the face of the planet. And it's because of, of those guys. So um, once that happened, it was no longer a rebellion thing. It was no longer, I, I honestly, you know, became indifferent about what my father thought of me. It, I didn't care. I didn't, you know, when I would finish a course or, or when I would deploy or whatever, I never cared what anyone thought after that it, because it, it now it was fulfilling me. Awesome. And, and now, so now to kind of touch on that, so you made a comment earlier that kind of stuck with me because it was one of the things that kind of fueled me because of my childhood and like leading into the things that, you know, I've done and I currently do today and, you know, the passions of helping other individuals. But, you know, you, you made a comment stating that, you know, that fuel to prove them wrong, it's, it's a good fuel, but it can't be, you know, it, there has to be something else because, and it's one of the consequences that I faced, you know, early on in my stepping out of, I guess, the slums that I was in, because it was to, you know, prove it wrong, you know, me sleeping under a bridge that, hey, this doesn't have to define who I am. And I accomplished that. But, you know, so once trying to prove others wrong and then you hit that 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 peak, what do I do now? Right. You know, because there's nothing set out for you. And then now to kind of follow up on that. Because I was, I had an interview with uh, Command Senior Chief uh, Troy Rudisil with the United States Navy yesterday. And, you know, he made a comment about, you know, when he enlisted in the Navy, he didn't realize how many opportunities, how many careers were available, just, just as you just said about the Marines. And I want to touch on that because, the, because now you're actually being able to find yourself in these different careers that you get to select from. And... I've always had this question because, you know, there's a lot of service members that when they leave, you know, whether they retire or they just, they step out, it's, you know, they find themselves in the careers of law enforcement, fire, paramedic, you know, and it's like first responders yet. I mean, I, I guess all service branches, you know, encapsulate, you know, being a first responder in general in lieu, you know what I mean? But so how much of the training that you went in, did you see something? Did you get it to base it on your current interest hobbies of, Hey, this sounds cool. Let me go ahead and seek this career, you know, within the Marine Corps, or was it kind of something that, you know, just kind of went with what came, I guess. I'll be perfectly honest. When I first went in the Marine Corps, I went with what came and thank, thankfully we did, uh, there was a, um, at boot camp, you take some tests, different aptitude tests, you know, to get in, you take the ASVAB and I'd scored very high on the ASVAB. I don't recall what I scored. The, one of the reasons why probably a lot of people didn't think I was very smart or because, um, people discounted me is I graduated high school with a 1.71 GPA. And that was because I, I didn't do homework one time at high school. And that was usually, <laughs> I worked with my, my dad owned a janitorial service. And usually when we got out of high school, we had to go work for my dad and we would work till midnight cleaning office buildings or car dealerships or whatever, uh, one o'clock in the morning sometimes. So, uh, I didn't apply myself in, in school at all. I never took, uh, SATs. I never, I, I was uh, no extracurricular activities, uh, never had someone over at my house, never went to anyone's house because that, that wasn't the lifestyle I lived. So, um, going into the Marine Corps, I, I just said, I, I just want to do anything to get out of there. That was, that was the focus when I was in the Marine Corps. And if they would have said, you have to go be a cook, I would have been a cook. Um, I would have been a horrible cook because I wouldn't have wanted to. That was probably the worst. 
I remember when guys would get fapped over to the chow hall to, to work and I would, I would be like, Oh God, I, I hope that never happens to me. But, um, but regardless, my thing was the Marine Corps was my, my rescue. You know, that was my, uh, my buoy. I was going to get the hell out of where I was because of the Marine Corps. It was only after that and luck happened to me a whole lot. So I signed up in the Marine Corps uh, to be a diesel mechanic because I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I, I don't even know how I picked it. But when I found out that they had different jobs, that one, I think the recruiter probably need diesel mechanics. And so they, you know, they slide there. Well, when I was in boot camp, you take some different aptitude tests, some uh, language testing and, and things of that nature. And I had taken no I took French and I think I barely passed it two years in high school, so I could graduate. But um, regardless, I scored very high. And so they said, hey, we're going to put you in this direction. And then when I went in that direction, there was an opportunity to take a, a reconnaissance screening. I took the reconnaissance screening did well and uh, from there made it into um, it, through a rip and then deployed a few times with the reconnaissance unit. Awesome. Now, how much life education did you get okay because i, I want to touch on this again with the camaraderie and everything else with the service and so growing up you know having a family that was racist abusive and then you know like i myself i i grew up very 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 racist you know but i was i was never exposed to any other culture Right. It was, you know, I grew up in Harrison, Ohio. It was predominantly, you know, uh, Caucasians. And so I was really never exposed to any other cultures. So just because, you know, my parents, you know, kind of fed into that race, that racism or the racist mentality, you know, I myself adapted it like, oh, yeah, hey, screw everybody, you know. And so going into the military, is that when exposure first happened for you of you know understanding and seeing other cultures or did it happen before that or no 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 i mean it, it happened in the in the marine corps and I, it's a funny story and i've only told this to a few people i don't think i've ever um actually recorded it because it's you know when as you're learning or as you look back there's things that i'm not i'm not really regretful of a lot of things there's a few things that i look back on and i go i wish that that hadn't gone down that way or whatever but where i grew up it was about a third white third black and a third Hispanic. And I remember, and I was just talking about this with a friend of mine, we had one mixed race couple in my high school out of all four years. It was a, huh. a black guy and a white girl. And it was, he was, nobody really said anything to him because he was a pretty tough guy. And I don't think anybody wanted to tangle with him. And, and I'm sure plenty of people were fine with it. There was in my circle, it was a lot of talk and people didn't like it and they didn't approve of it and they were against it. So that was how I was raised. Um, I don't think that, uh, well, I'm positive. I didn't know anyone who was gay until I went into the Marine Corps. So I go in the Marine Corps and my mentality had been, my parents had worked in various construction and, and janitorial services. And so sometimes the people that they would associate with weren't the best. And my dad always had blame for someone else. And there was always rate if someone else happened to be of another race, it was that was the reason that he couldn't get along with them or that was the reason that they were they cheated him or whatever. That was his excuse. And and I didn't see through it at first, but the later years I was like, yeah, that that my dad was wrong. And I knew it in my brain. But I still had those that ideology. I was better because I was white. They were lesser because they were black. So my first roommate, I go up to Fort Nevins, Massachusetts, 
and my first roommate was black guy and his last name is Shepard. And uh, I remember calling home and complaining that I had to live with the black guy. <laughs> I did. I know. I mean, it's reality, you know, it's, I'll tell you this. And I talked to the, I talked to, we call him Shep, talk to him every once in a while. I've never told him this story, but we became pretty good friends. Um, I won't say that abracadabra racism is um, dissolved or, or, or repaired or behind you because it's not biases are real and learned biases are very difficult to overcome. However, this guy became someone who I really looked up to and he outperformed me at most things that we did, uh, including, I mean, he's just a very intelligent guy. Uh, fast forward a few years later and I met another great friend, but by, by the way, um, Shepard, as I will call him, um, retired as a master gunnery sergeant in the, in the Marine Corps. Wow. Um, and then I met probably to this minute, the smartest person I've ever met in my life, Don Moore. And, uh, if he sees this, he's going to laugh, but, um, Don Moore is like one of the most intellectually intelligent person I've ever met. He learned and spoke Chinese and Russian and taught languages. Some artists learn more difficult language, especially in the military arena, to learn and understand. And the guy is just brilliant, unless he drank beer and then he was an idiot and he kicked my ass twice. <laughs> and he was horrible to be around when he drank and just a mean bastard. But but I love him to death. And, and looking back now, I go, I judge those people because of their race at that age and at that at my understanding of who I was and what the world was. Uh, and it takes a long time for you to be able to to look and say, you know what, the world isn't what you are taught it is. It's what you learn it is. And being around those guys was, and, and I could name 50 people, but those two people really stood out to me. And, and I think probably because when we started, I, I looked down upon them. For, I felt that I had that, um, that ability to look at them as lesser. And when it's all said and done, either one of those guys have like, they, they have very amazing lives. They're very amazing people. And I, and it, it took a, it took a minute for me to learn that they were who they were without anything to do with me or their race or my race or any of those things. So uh, that was probably the greatest gift that the military gave to me. Awesome. And, and that is huge, you know, because it's people like to play around with the idea that, you know, racism was dissolved as soon as freedom was granted. And, you know, they're idiots. I mean, flat out. I mean, if, if people really want to say that with a straight face and it's ignorance to the magnitude, you know, because it is one of those things to where because of it being a learned behavior, it, it really is a learned behavior, you know, and just know, just you grow up in an English speaking home, you're going to speak English, Spanish speaking, you're going to speak Spanish, a racist home, you are going to grow up and establish that learned behavior of being a racist of, you know, putting yourself on a scale of anything else. And it goes the same on the other side for the other cultures, to where it's the, they always look down on us. That's a learned behavior. So, you know, everybody's always scratching their heads, especially in like today's society about why things are, you know, go away and we have so many riots and one side doesn't understand the others because, you know, the vast majority of us have not really taken the time to understand the real history of each other. 
right. you know, and it's the, it, and it's a shame. And it's when you finally are exposed to the other cultures and you start realizing that shit, half these people are better than I am or who you thought I was, you know, and it's not, it's not you know, I like that you just said it that way because that's a sobering thing to think. And, and today I will tell you, I don't think there's very many people that are better than me. I certainly don't think I'm better than very many people though. And I, and I like to look at it like that because we all have different attributes and different beliefs and, and, you know, understanding, but I will say that when you first can look at someone and be like, Oh, Oh, I, I'm judging someone that's actually better than me. It, it snapped you to attention or it should. And, and, um, I appreciate that you said it that way, because that's, I think when you have that awakening, you can go one of two ways. One way is you can appreciate that and you can learn from it. The other is you can fight it and you can become more steadfast. And this is what I see with people who are, who are deeply entrenched in race, whatever ism that you want, whatever hate that they have. I think that those people deep down in their hearts know the truth. And they and, fight and that's, so much, it creates hate and, in them. And, and that, and that, that, well, that is it. I'm glad you said it like that, because what is the one emotion that human beings in general do not like to feel? It's being wrong. Oh right? yeah. So then, our whole lives growing up with a mentality or that learned behavior, and then all of a sudden, it's like you see something that proves it wrong. It's like, well, no, I'm wrong. What? <laughs> it can't be. I've been held to this belief, this, you know, firmly, whatever the case may be. And, and I think that plays a large role on it. I mean, just like you said, you know, they don't really want to face that truth. It's like, well, that can't be. It can't be. You know, they're still trying to prove themselves right because nobody likes to be wrong, you know, but yeah. it's, that, <laughs> it's that pain that helps us grow sometimes, you know, so. Oh, I hate it, being wrong. <laughs> Maturity teaches us that we can be wrong and you don't have to be bad because you're wrong. And I think that's, that's the other thing is we, I want to be right once I'm right. And sometimes you have to be wrong a little bit and, and wallow in it. And I, I tell my kids all the time, every bad thing that ever happened to me, and this is really the way I try to look at it. Every bad thing that ever happened to me, I drove myself there, you know, Every time I put myself in, in a situation with choices where I didn't have to go there when something truly bad happened to me. So when you are owning it a little bit better, it's easier to to grow from it. Awesome. And then now with with that being said, now leading into. OK, so now and I'm carrying this topic and I'm trying to structure this because you know I'm always looking at the mental health side of everything. So, you know, you worked on that when you first went to the Marines. Now, let's fast forward to when you were, you know, kind of deployed. I mean, I know we're skipping a lot of things in between. Sure. But now being, you know, deployed and you're over in Afghanistan or Iraq, and now you see a whole different culture. Yeah. I mean, how much shock did that play on you? I mean, it, overall in general, and I'm just trying to, because I'm trying to piece this all together from beginning growing up in a racist home, okay, to where you're finally being exposed to other cultures and the good in other cultures, and then now also going over and seeing a whole different culture that 98% of Americans aren't even exposed to. Right. I mean, that's a that's a 
throwing out their numbers, not not accurate. No, no, but, you know, but 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 it's, you know, it's so it's but and it isn't even just the culture though. I mean, culture isn't just ethnicity. Culture is environment, and trust me when I say this to any viewers out there that overseas is a whole different culture, especially in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, and that plays a whole mental screw, if you will. Yeah. You know, and so how much more shock did that do or did that play into that growth that you have developed through the course of your life to become, you know, the man that you are today? Well, going into Iraq, um, I, I, I don't think I was too shocked in Iraq simply because we'd been exposed at that point to so much media. I, I went to Iraq in uh, December, 2004. Um, and so we'd had, you know, a little bit of time on TV. And I also had been in the Middle East uh, as a Marine uh, on, on a couple of deployments where we were, um, I'd gone to Yemen, I'd been to Oman, and uh, as we used to call it, Qatar, but now for some reason it's gutter. Um, I'd actually <laughs> walked streets there back in the 90s. Um, and I'd been to Kuwait and I'd been to Dubai and I'd been to Jabal Ali and I'd been to these places. So I had a little, a small understanding of some of the cultural pieces. And I also had a small understanding of that harsh environment. And it is, it is brutal. Um, so that wasn't overly surprising to me. And the other thing that I think I did very well because of was when we went to Iraq, um, I was a little, I was a lot more experienced than most people in our entire battalion. So um, I had like this sense of, I don't know, um, responsibility beyond the responsibilities that the military places on you. I, I felt responsible. We, we had very young guys over there with us um, and we were doing a very ugly mission. We did roadside clearance for a year where we drove up and down the roads at eight to 12 miles an hour, physically looking for roadside bombs. So it's, my focus was able to, to kind of keep on like, I need to be in charge. I need to set the example. And, and that was very beneficial to me. So shock there, not so much. Now here's when I went to Afghanistan, I was an old man at 32, uh, I'm sorry, 37. I would love to be 37 again now, but I went to Iraq uh, and 37 years old. And I thought that I was wise and I had these preconceived notions in my head. Now I went over there to be an embedded infantry mentor and the IED um, mitigation team leader uh, on a small team. We went with um, some Hungarians. Uh, we trained in Hungary actually for seven months together so we could go and train Afghans embedded. And I had this notion that Iraq was going to be, uh, I'm sorry, Afghanistan was going to be very similar to Iraq. And from the minute I got there, I realized I was wrong. And every moment after that taught me how much more wrong I was. And that was from the environment to the people, to the training of of these um afghan commandos that we were with and these you know everything about it did shock me there the the, the way the populace was the way i mean there's just and i'll tell you the probably the most shocking thing that i had was we went into um kabul and then up north to mazari sharif and then we had about a seven hour by vehicle trek to the camp I was at. We were at a very small combat outpost, uh, about 750 Afghans, and then 28 of us American and Hungarians. So we went by in this in this truck, and 
it was really hot and you you couldn't see anything except for out of the gun ports so i was looking through these gun ports the whole trip which was supposed to be seven hours and i think it ended up taking 10. it's sweltering hot and the whole time i'm looking all I can see across the entire countryside, everywhere we looked, was there's these old BMPs and VPRs that Russia, in 91, when they left, they just lit them on fire and walked away from them. And that was wow. sobering. That was like, wow, this, you know, this country defeated the USSR, basically caused them to nearly go bankrupt. And it was because a large part was because of their involvement in Afghanistan. And when I realized that that country had just walked away from all this stuff from a bunch of goat herders and, you know, whatever you want to call these people, they're, um, you know, they're, uh, they're not sophisticated. They don't have the weaponry, blah, 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 blah. And you realize that, that, that they walked Russia right back out of their country. That woke me up. That was shocking. It is. And, and, you know, another thing, too, that, you know, a lot of individuals don't realize this, again, because, you know, we in the civilian sector in the United States, we only really know what the media chooses to provide to us. You know, and a lot of individuals don't know that the Kringle Valley has never been defeated by any country ever. They've won every battle. I mean, from, you know, USSR. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, everybody. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's why I, I love history, because, you know, history is sobering. As I, I love that term that you use, because, you know, it really kind of will just, you know, set you there. And, you know, one of the things that brought it to light to me to kind of like, you know, fulfill that part of history for me was Sebastian Junger. You know, he was a journalist, but he actually went in, you know, to combat with the soldiers and everything else, too. And he wrote a book called War. If you ever have a chance, if you read, it's a phenomenal book. I mean, it talks about, you know, kind of what you and I are talking about right now, the psych going in, you know, what the brothers and sisters, you know, experience while they're there and then what happens like leaving and things. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, the coverage of the Kringle Valley. And, you know, we lost that war, but, you know, we were able to go over there and establish the hospitals, the schools and things like that, that, you know, initially we were, you know, going over there to set out to do, but it's the, uh, it's tough and it, it's, and it is sobering. You know, everybody looks at, you know, the United States as, you know, top of the world, but hey, they're, they're undefeated over there, <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's, and it is sobering at times like that too, but being exposed to that culture, you know? And so with that being said, you know, how much of that and okay. So you went in at 17, and, you know, you, you kind of had your, you know, the, the course of, you know, being Marine and then for the viewers at home, you know, in between time, that's when, you know, Sam, you know, became, uh, went into the fire department, you know, became Lieutenant for the fire Academy, Cleveland fire Academy, you know, taught new cadets and then was deployed again, I, I believe for 16, if I'm not wrong, 16 months, he was away from his family. And so now mentality, because like, Corpsmen today are experiencing the same thing. You know, the veterans of the, the Corps today are experiencing, you know, a new generation coming in there. So from the time that you went in at 17 until when you went over there at the age of 37, you know, how much internal culture changed? Not just, you know, yeah, right. being exposed to the deployments, but how much internal culture of the Corps, you know, did you witness? Well, and what's funny is when I went to Iraq, I was actually 32. Um, so, uh, Still a very old man because I was with 20-year-olds. I was with 19-year-olds. I was with guys that could, weren't old enough to drink. Yeah, but they um, need that, though. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you 32 and 37, uh, that's, that's, um, it, we need those guys over there too, because of the, the in, intelligence they have. And sometimes, Experience. The, well, and the wonderful thing about a 20 year old is they'll charge you that wall. <laughs> Whereas the wonderful thing about when I was 37 is I would open the door and walk <laughs> around the, I mean, and, and you, you have to have that mix, but my internal thought and belief process had changed so much. You know, when I first went in the Marine Corps and, I, and one of the Marines that um, I was in Galveston a few years ago with, I remember we would drive and we'd be like, we, we just couldn't wait for something to happen. Now this was in the nineties. I went into 91. We just couldn't wait to go and fight. We would talk about all the heroic stuff we wanted to do and how cool this would be or nothing happened. Um, a bunch of times we got stood up or, you know, we thought something was about to happen. Um, we were, I'd been through the Straits of Hormuz a few times and, you know, like it's a, back then there was, there was a lot of threat and Saddam had been moving outside of his box a little, there was a lot of threat. And, uh, we had this mindset that we just wanted to go and get involved and get into firefights and do all this great stuff. And when I was 32, I was like, I'd really like to have a day where I'm not worried about my guys getting blown up or me getting blown up or something happening. Um, when I first got there, two things that I'm very, probably very proud of for going to Iraq and Afghanistan, that was the very first democratic elections ever held in Iraq and the very first democratic elections held in Afghanistan. I was there for. You're a part of history. I, and I feel, here's the thing too. Every, every man I served with, will have his own opinion and his own perspective, and it does not have to match mine. But I don't have to wonder what I think based on other people's stories. I have my very own view because I was there. So so from that perspective, I'm very proud of it. But when we first got there, it was really chaotic. And the IEDs hadn't really advanced to the level. It just took about four months for them to really get advanced. But we get on election. That's still a pretty quick period of time, though. Well, and Syria was involved and Iran was involved. And we knew a lot of that, a lot of that sophistication and weaponry was coming from those places. But we, when we were patrolling, the Iraqi National Guard was, um, you know, they were, we were standing them up. We we're trying to get them to fight for themselves. And on election night, it was a chaotic day. And I was right outside of Baghdad. And so we got fired upon by Iraqis, which was, it didn't, that was not an infrequent um, opportunity for us. And I returned, we, we were basically in a firefight with the good guys. And, uh, that's when I realized how serious it was because boy, they had to have this huge investigation and people had to come and see who fired first and what had happened and why it happened that way. Now they were at a polling place that had been attacked multiple times that day. And so they were very skittish. Now here comes our unit very new unit too by the way this this tactic was not seen before us really we had five vehicles two of which were up armored humvees in the front two in the back and then a big buffalo in the middle in the middle of the night all vehicles had five spotlights on it so we lit up like a christmas tree and we did eight to 12 miles an hour physically looking at the road looking for bombs so these sure. guys see that and we're way up on this elevated bridge and so what happens is they think they're about to get attacked and, and they fired upon us. So that taught me a lot of things. And that was the enemy wasn't always the yeah. enemy. You did you had no idea what to expect from uh, other countries. And 
the other and thing it's amazing how much rules of engagement to come I mean, because that plays a big you know mental screw on you too when rules of engagement especially when it comes to friendly fire rules of engagement and then if you have those you know within our battalion that aren't really familiar with rules of engagement upon friendly fire it can really throw things away so that's where you know having the knowledgeable veterans like yourself you know being in there to be able to control that situation and taking a bad situation to make it right you know it's a lot of people they, they discard those very realities because rules of engagement when friendly fire is involved it's very fine print you know and it's well you know it's here's what i'll tell you though it only takes one side to not follow the rules of engagement and things can get really nasty and luckily we, we wounded a few of those guys but no one none of them died and and that's a good thing but you know you look at you look at the things here's the other thing when i went to iraq in 2004 it was pretty much on and by the time we left there it was regulated a little bit better a little bit more i i wouldn't always say better because we we had some some very poor leadership decisions within our own battalion, like I'm sure happens everywhere. But um, going into Afghanistan was a completely different animal because uh, General McChrystal had just taken over and he was more about hearts. You know, he talked about hearts and minds. He was an old special forces guy and he wanted to get into hearts and minds. And so it changed the complete. Here's what happens when you change the rules of engagement overnight like that is all of your fighters, all of your guys over there, and, and women fighting the fight now have to change things up. And that's fine because uh, the military can be a very disciplined force mm -hmm. and can, can adapt to those changes. But what you can't do is you can't tell the indigenous population that we're changing our rules of engagement and now you can do this or you can't do that. And so those are things that sometimes we forget. We can always control ourselves, but you can't control the other side or the response from the other side, especially when they don't know what's happening. Exactly. So I watched those things put us in, in situations that I would have rather not been in. Yeah, I mean, it, and it happens. It's just that, you know, and one of the great minds that, you know, unfortunately, so many people forget about is Storm and Norman. You know, when he knew that the media was sharing things that they should have been sharing and was putting your life and everybody else's life in danger. And he shared publicly you know, the plans of what the U.S. was going to do and going in there and then, you know, complete opposite. So it was the, you know, the preying on the media. And it was genius. You know, it wasn't just genius in his planning on the attack and the way that, you know, the forward progress is going to be done. It was that play on the media, knowing that people were actually violating the safety and well-being of you, your battalion, everything else, too. So it's there's so many things that go into play into that and. You know, I thank you for your service as well, too. You know, it's one of the right. things. That's why I'm talking about like culture, because, you know, again, civilian sector, they never understand what we experience in war and things like that. Even, even some individuals that are enlisted or, you know, serving currently, you know, a very few percentage of military actually sees combat. Right. You know, so it's kind of a, it's foreign to them as well, too. So that exposure and you getting firsthand exposure and I love your story because you know the progression from childhood and then into that extreme over there and everything else too and it's probably why you know you have so much to give you know being a mentor being a leader you know providing the the life and business coaching you know and 
it's it's amazing, you know. Well, and I really and I attribute a lot to the, just the people around me, and I've always just found myself very lucky. Not always lucky. Um, sometimes it's it's you create a lot of your own luck. But I also have been lucky to be in the right place at the right time. DTFW. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it it's so ingrained in me to look for, you know, if I go this is why I always go everywhere so early and it drives some people crazy. It's nothing for me to get somewhere 30 minutes early, but I like to, I like to be able to evaluate what's around me and then see who do I want to sit around? Who do I want to be around? Who do I want in my presence? Because I know it makes me a better person. And like my business coach is, is Hank Avick. If anybody knows him, he's, you know, he talks about these things. And even today as a almost 48 year old, I, I listen to him and I listen to the things and how they apply to my life. And I laugh and I'm like, man, why didn't someone tell me that when I was 24? <laughs> you know, but I know why, because they probably did. And I just didn't listen. I didn't have the uh, maturity to listen back then. So with with what you've get, what you gained in the military. So, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it was six years or so that you served in the Marines before, you know, coming home to where. You know, you were looking for a job. I think you said you were in uh, Southern California. And yep. I guess Southern Cal was expensive. You moved to Oregon. And then, you know, you got the, the job at the the Mistake by the Lake or whatever. And it then kind of let, led into Cleveland Fire. Right. You know? And I believe there was 4,400 applicants. You ranked fourth. And that's that in itself is impressive. You know, when you and, and that has to like kind of still, you know, have a constant hand patting you on the back for yourself, which you deserve it, you know, when, especially when understanding the beginnings, as far as having that 1.71 grade point average in high school, you know, because not doing the homework, but it was, and, you know, cause I was kind of the same way. It was just that I couldn't do the work, but the only way I even passed was because of the testing, you know, I knew right. this, but I just didn't do the work, you know, but it was the, uh, you know, so, and then, you know, ranking fourth, and a lot of it has to do with other skills outside of just educational knowledge. But I mean, that's impressive. So then going into the fire again, culture, how, how much was culture the same or how much change did you experience from? And again, this is prior to Sam's uh, deployment over to Iraq, Afghanistan and everything as well, too. This is where he took the break. You know, he served, you know, the Marine Corps for six years and then into the fire. So you want to fill us in on that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I got out of the Marine Corps. I was living in Southern California. Um, actually, I lived in Newport Beach uh, because I lived with uh, my girlfriend at the time who could afford it. We broke up and I couldn't afford it anymore. So um, I, I worked for a company. Uh, it doesn't matter the name. They're a big national company. Um, and they actually uh, had me go interview in Oregon. I did not get that position. I went and interviewed in Oregon. I was like, yes, yeah, Pacific Northwest. I'm an outdoors person. That'll be perfect. Uh, I interviewed for it against someone else in the company that had been there for, I believe, eight years and had a master's degree. And they obviously made a very good choice for the company and took him. So hey, can, I, can I ask you a question real quick and stop? I, I, I want to I don't I don't really like cutting people off like that, but I want to kind of touch on this again, you know, because, you know, the mental strength that you've developed through the course of these years. So the maturity at that time in your life, I mean, obviously, you know, it's after the Marine Corps. So, you know, you had developed a lot of the maturity, but, you know, being sent out there specifically because it was a position that, you know, probably mentally should have been like a, a lay down. 
but you know, how humbling or, you know, how did that affect you mentally? I mean, even though that you're humble enough to state that, you know, obviously they selected the best choice that sure. was going to better the company with selecting the guy with the higher qualifications, but how did that affect you in, in a personal thing, you know, as far as being able to say, Oh, wow. I'll be honest. It stung for a, a, a minute. And, but the reason here's the thing, if I had just been up against someone else and I didn't know any of their qualifications and I didn't know anything, I probably, it, it would have, it would have had a much bigger negative impact. But what happened was the company was actually very good and told me why my interviews couldn't have gone better. I, it, it, I thought I had the job. When they informed me, I didn't. They informed me why. And they said, this guy's been with the company for eight years. He already lives here. He has a master's degree. Everything in his resume was was a 10. And the things in my resume that were a 10 were a 10, but there were things that were unknown. I'd only been with the company for about eight months. There were, there were just some certain things, uh, uncertainties for them. And they would have had to pay to move me up to, to Oregon and all these things. And, and so once I knew those things, it took all the sting out of it, except for, oh, shucks, it kind of sucks. So my, my, the boss at the time says, hey, the cool thing is they have the exact same position in Cleveland, Ohio. And I remember looking at him. I'd never been in the Midwest. And I Who said, moves to Cleveland on purpose? <laughs> and I said, are you out of your mind? I'd always lived, you know, being a Marine. I grew up in Florida and then being a Marine, you're always somewhere close to water, large bodies of water. So I said, Cleveland. I was like, I think you have to have a gunshot wound to live there. I had all these jokes. Your water <laughs> caught on fire, the mistake by the lake. They had lost the Browns. So all these negative things, man. You, and here, here's what I say to even today, because I've lived here since 1997 now. Um, so 20, almost 25 years. And what I will tell you today is there's two types of people that don't like, like Cleveland. And that's people who've never been here or people who've never left from here. Because I've or been Cincinnati. all around Cincinnati's five hours. I don't, not even Ohio, man. Those people are weird. But, uh, but, but I had those jokes, and then I flew out. Well, and I wasn't even going to interview the the guy in LA. Says, "Hey, you got to go at least interview, or you're closing the door, and you're not going to get more opportunities." I met this great salesman, and all of a sudden, I lived here three weeks later. Everything was going swimmingly. I enjoyed it. It was a cool company. Um, I met to this day, still one of my close friends uh, who wanted to become a Cleveland police officer. He's already on the list. He was going to start the next academy. And very quickly, the company changed. Uh, their competitor bought them out. And we were hmm. five blocks away. And they had someone that had been with the company for about eight years. That like They didn't really need two of us. And I kind of saw some writing on the wall and some changes that I said, you know, I don't think that my time is long here. So um, I really wanted to become a, a police officer. So I took the police test and the fire test like two weeks apart or a week, apart, whatever it was, they were like right at the same time. And I really wanted to be a police officer. I scored 24. Yeah. Uh, I, I scored 24th on the police list. And then the fire list took forever to get us results. I mean, I don't know what, I, I don't recall all of the things that happened, but there was a huge lawsuit, um, a racial discrimination lawsuit. So finally, my father-in-law calls me and he goes, hey, you're fourth on that test. And I was like, he, he's not a, he, how could he possibly know that? Turns out, I get my results, I'm fourth. Well, two years, they held up the academy. So in that two-year period, 
I stopped wanting to be a police officer and I started to want to become a fireman. And I think, thank God, because I, I wouldn't have enjoyed the police service. It, it wouldn't have been the way I loved the fire department. So get hired to go to the fire academy. Um, That's important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, again, it's about maturity. You know, I used to want to be a police officer because I thought it was going to be cool. And, you know, and I would have probably gotten in trouble. That relevancy, too, you know, and and that's one of the things that I try to preach to individuals, too. And I know that it's huge with you and the the life and business coaching that you provide to individuals because, you know, you, I and, you know, many others, you know, realize that, you know, if you can't have a passion about the career you're stepping into, you are irrelevant, you know, and then you understanding that relevance that just, you know, proves your maturity and, you know, kind of goes apart with this story and your growth and everything else too. And I just wanted to kind of point that out because, you know, you being able to recognize that, you know, it really wasn't your passion for the law enforcement as, you know, it had been in the past because then you look at it to where, Hey, let's just pretend that you would have stepped into that career or something that was just, it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been relevant to you, your interest or anything else. And, and especially in that career and any kind of first responder career, if you step in there and your mind's not really fully into that, it can be very devastating to you, your family, and especially, you know, fellow uh, brothers and sisters serving with you and as a first responder. So it's the, I commend you for, you know, again, that attentiveness, you know, about yourself, attentiveness about your interests, your likes, and, you know, making that decision to go into the fire. Well, and I initially, I didn't know if it was the right decision or not. And I talked to a police lieutenant who I didn't know. And I said, hey, here's my dilemma. The, actually, the police academy started a week before the fire academy did once that lawsuit was was handled. So um, I said, you know, I'm not really sure. And he goes, I've been on 11 years and there isn't a day that goes by that I didn't wish I was a fireman instead. And and and, it, <laughs> and he said, here's what we're going to do. We'll opt you out of the first class of the police academy. They're going to run three academy classes and we'll put you in as the number one spot in the second academy should you decide that the fire was the wrong move and after three days at the fire academy i was like i'm I'm in the right place (laughs) home (laughs) i mean it was brutal they um cleveland fire department um, used to be not anymore but used to be extremely competitive testing it used to be uh you know we did competitive uh time for physical agility tests it was competitive uh written as well uh and and they've changed that um to, to try to be more, to try to get a larger diversity group and, and people they want, they want people that it will appeal to other than your guys like me. So, uh, but it used to be extremely difficult to get on. It used to be extremely difficult Academy. Um, I, I mean, they kicked our ass and, and, you know, I, the difference between Marine Corps boot camp and, uh, the fire academy was tremendous. I won't try to make that comparison, but I will say they they ran it quite similarly to a boot camp, which I was thankful for because uh, you know I think that it's important, especially more than half our class had never been in the military, and and I liked that you are building that situation in their mind. And then so. During your time in, were there any calls that you responded to that weighed heavy on you or so I'm just trying to think of the right way to ask this question as far as, you know, again, kind of like military, you know, not Mm -hmm. all military actually sees combat, 
just like right. not all firefighters are actually exposed to those critical incidents. Yeah. So were there any uh, critical incidents that kind of stuck with you or how long in serving with Cleveland Fire did, until that actually happened? Or, you know, how, how did that go like during your career with Cleveland Fire? So Cleveland is a funny, uh, unique location. And I will say this. I am lucky in the sense that I never allowed or I don't know. I shouldn't say allow because there are people that they don't have a choice. They suffer from PTSD. They suffer from things that affect them differently than me. And I, I it's not a choice per se, but I, they never affected me in that regard. And as far as critical incidents, um, I worked on East 73rd and Superior for 13 years on a heavy rescue and I was a paramedic. So um, I had actually, I've actually don't have a tally, but I would venture to say I've been to more than 200 shootings in the U S um, wow. because I was there for 13 years as a paramedic, uh, and firefighter. Um, I have been to, um, and Cleveland, you know, for those that don't know, you know, Cleveland is a, in some areas, it is a high crime area that does have, in, the, in, in, in we, for the 13 years I was there in 10 of those years, we were in the top 10 most dangerous communities in the United States. And, that, and that's um, important for the viewers to understand. And that's why I want to kind of point that out, you know, in your career of like you saying about the, you know, 200 plus shootings, you know, that, that's why I wanted to point that out. You know, a lot of individuals may not know too much about Cleveland, Ohio, or its demographics, environment, everything else like that. And because that also plays a large role into, you know, being a first responder in general, whether it's the fire, paramedic, law enforcement, and you, you also made a comment. I, I want you to get back in the, you know, going over all this, but, you know, because you also made a comment about choice in regard to, you know, how it never really affected you about PTSD. So, you know, I had the pleasure of doing an interview with Michael Subaru. Okay. He has the, the first responders first. And, you know, he had his extensive career, exemplary career, law enforcement. He's a big mental health advocate, you know, suicide awareness prevention. And, one of the things, because he has this book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Fight Against Frontline Trauma. Well, and it's also with, uh, it's co-authored by the uh, Shauna Doc Springer. And one of the things that's discussed in there, and even Michael Zanito, they promote it as PTSI rather than PTSD. Because like the PTSI states it as an injury rather than a disorder because individuals that are exposed to certain traumas without their throughout their life, whether it's their childhood, whether it's their career, whether it's, you know, traumatic events that they experience, it's not a disorder because you are able to overcome that as you just, you know, stated. And that's the reason I want to kind of point this out yeah. because it is important. And that's how you could be a, a vital resource to those that, you know, are struggling. And, but I really believe as you just pointed out that it is a choice you know, and I know, and I don't say that to kind of downplay anybody that is experiencing PTSD, but, you know, just, just as it is with any kind of addiction, you know, we, we do have to have that realization that this is not something that you have to be stuck with, that you do have a choice to speak to somebody, to find a way to, to deal with that, to which, you know, some traumatic events, you can witness a doll getting ran over and it may affect you more right. than me losing my mother. You know, and so it's just that in that dealing with and coping with those incidences, you know, and some individuals wouldn't be able to experience one shooting or responding to and you being the individual that's responsible or 
I'm not going to say responsible, but ultimately responsible. If this person's going to have another breath, if they're going to pass away right there in front of you. No, that uh, you, you, you know, what's really funny. And I never looked at it like that because I was like, I'm going to show up to work and I'm going to enjoy it. And that was really my focus. And if we got a shooting, I was going to enjoy it and not in a morbid way of, I want to see. And I did, I always wanted to go to those calls. If I heard a call, God forbid it was a fire and we didn't get to go because I wanted to go. I never wished anyone to be in those situations, but I think the way the, the place I was in my mind that helped me so much to not, not be affected by it was I was going because that was my job and I was going there only to help. So I didn't worry about, you know, and I, 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 I've transported three children on the age of eight that with gunshot wounds. Wow. That <laughs> it, it never, it never um, haunted me per se, but it certainly pissed me off. And it certainly was like, how in the world can, can these, can these children get shot? So if anything bothered me, it was that I've been to, I think we went to, uh, well, I, I know we went to multiple um, house fires with, uh, with children fatalities. And those, I, I, I wouldn't say to say they didn't bother me would be a lie, but I never, they never haunted me. It bothered me because you just think how sad, especially if you start to, if you start to dig into the dynamics of why it happened or how it happened, one was an arson fire. Actually, we had an arson fire that killed four children and we pulled all four kids out and, uh, they were alive when we pulled them out and they end up dying. And you go, like, it didn't bother me that, that um, we couldn't save them because I know that we did our, like, I saw what happened that night and I saw who did what, and it was, it was relatively impressive at the same time. There's no way that anyone on earth could have saved those children from our perspective. So, so that's why, like, if we had done something wrong, I think I would feel a lot differently about it, but I just looked at and said, well, we gave them their absolute best chance. And so I can let it go. And, and that's just how, like, there's, there's certain things that you can't look at that way. There's certainly certain things that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan that, um, that I feel much differently about, but those situations, I was called to a horrible situation for someone that day. And I tried to help. And that's, that's why it was like, I never, it never bothered me. And so now going back to childhood and your exposure in the military, and I believe this is important, you know, and I, I point things out like this, you know, my whole bachelor's is in behavior analysis and that's why I love the mental health sector. I just love understanding and helping others understand themselves. And because in understanding others, you know, helps me understand myself. But, you know, one of the things that I look at is, you were exposed at a very young age to the the tragedies of life, if you will, you know? So, so from early on, you had to develop that callous in your mind that bad shit happens. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Opposed to an individual that really hasn't been exposed to any negatives in life or the bad shit other than what they can see on the news or anything right. else. So in going in and, you know, you really can't, I mean, you can watch a movie and break down in tears because you can kind of understand the emotion that the person's going through or like somebody losing somebody and things like that. But, you know, seeing an eight year old or under with a gunshot wound is a traumatic experience. But, you know, how much do you think that your childhood, your upbringing, that calloused mind, if you will, 
you know, kind of helped where, you know, a lot of times the tragedies in our lives are really the true blessings, whether it's in guiding others or whether it's in, you know, us being able to have that callous skin or tough skin that where things don't really tear us down as they would if we were sensitive or sure. anything else like that. So, I mean, how much do you think that your earlier life and then also your Marine life, you know, kind of fed into your ability to stay mentally strong, if you will, you know, during your service as fire and paramedic? I have no idea. Uh, the, I mean, we can only surmise or, or, or estimate because I don't know, was that what prepared me? Am I just built that way? Was it something in the military? I will say this, and, and this is a really funny thing that um, my wife is extremely queasy. If you mention blood too many times, there's a possibility you could think. And my children are the same way. Um, and and they cannot believe for the life of them that I was exactly the same way until I went in, not in the Marine Corps, but on the fire department. I didn't, it bothered me. And then I decided I was going to go to paramedic school. And I said, not, that's it just can't bother me. And that was, I, it was done. Um, and I've seen some things that are pretty unbelievable. Um, with How long into doctor. the fire did you do the paramedic school? Was that kind of like a hand in hand or was nope. it what you've seen as a fire fighter that led you into paramedic or was it, I mean, cause you know, as you keep growing in your career, I'm, I'm just asking these questions cause it's amazing. You know, you have an exemplary career and you, you know, you've meddled in so many careers of service, you know, even what you do currently today being a realtor, it's service of other people, regardless of how anybody looks at it. Right. You know, and it's just, and you you follow that path. And I'm just trying to, you know, for viewers and everything else too, that may help them encourage them on, you know, seeking other careers if they're in a career right now or if they're planning their future of what kind of led from fire into the paramedic, which they realistically they go hand in hand across sure. the nation. So across, well, and here's what I want to explain a couple things. One is Cleveland is I love Cleveland. I this is my city and I love the fire department but it's one of the most mismanaged cities and most poorly run cities in the United States. So we're about 20 years behind the average city of our average size. Hmm. Um, it, it, and, and it's despicable that it's run that way, but that's, that's for another call. Um, what, if you look across the nation, most, most um, fire departments, most cities, most municipalities understand that duplicity in service is a bad thing. And, why don't we integrate? Um, so we did not have to be paramedics on the Cleveland Fire Department. We had to be EMT basics. I had no desire to be a paramedic, actually. I had a desire to get to Rescue Squad 3, which was on the east side of Cleveland in a very rough neighborhood. And they had a, they had a history. They had um, a, a, a bit of a legacy for being a one of the busiest companies in the United States uh, for five of those 13 years I was there, we were in the top five heaviest, uh, busiest heavy rescues in the whole U S. So I wanted to be there and I knew with my, seniority, yeah, with my seniority, it wasn't going to be very likely unless I was a paramedic because they have to run with a paramedic daily because it's an ALS transport unit. So hmm. my motivation was very self-serving and I went to paramedic school, not excited about patient care. 
and I'm now when I say I'm not excited about patient care, it doesn't mean I'm not going to give you the utmost care that I can. But I knew I know paramedics that just would love they'd love to go on medical runs. Honestly, it's what builds careers, Sam. Well, I wanted to go to fires <laughs> and I wanted to go to all the uh, the car wrecks and the shootings and the like and I did. And being one of only four at that time, four heavy rescues in the whole city of Cleveland and being one of the two on the east side, which is where everything happens, the best way to be there was be a paramedic. So I was like, I'll be a paramedic if that gets me to squad three. And that, <laughs> I'm, that is, I mean, in a nutshell, that's why I went to paramedic school. Awesome. So now, once being in paramedic school, so was the schooling and everything at Cleveland Clinic or was did you complete schooling and then wind up at because you volunteered at the Cleveland Clinic, correct? Or was it part? Was it volunteer? Or was it part time? Just no, it's just part time. I was just working in the emergency yeah. room part time to make ends meet. Um, you know, Cleveland Fire also is one of the notoriously cheapest paid departments in the whole U.S. Um, <laughs> if I got, if I could make the money, well, that, that's it's. There's a lot of reasons that firemen, especially in these bigger cities, have other jobs. It's because they have to. And I had it's to. It's insane. So, I mean, you got to figure like even today, if I'm not mistaken, I might be a little wrong, but I'm not too wrong. The median pay for a firefighter nationwide today is $17.75 yeah. is the average. That is sickening to think of the sacrifices you and every other firefighter on this planet you know, expose themselves to and placing themselves, you know, endangering themselves for the betterment and safety and rescue of civilian sector. And it's disgusting to pay us. And I'll touch on that real quick, too. Um, only because, and listen, I know that there's plenty of men and women out there in the fire service that do it for those um, amazing reasons. And I'm not one of those. I, like, I remember in the interview process, you had to, you have to talk to a um, a, psychi a psychologist and they do a psyche vow. And I remember in the psyche vow, I, I, I actually, I failed the first psyche vow because the guy was 40 minutes late and it's, this is notorious. This guy is nuts. Like he's the psychologist <laughs> the Cleveland. and there's two and he's the nutso guy. And, uh, he was almost 40 minutes late. Now imagine I'm trying to get on the Cleveland fire department, which is in 1998, when I took the test, very difficult to do. He's almost 40 minutes late with no one in his office. Like it was just, <laughs> it was open and there was like eight rooms in there and I'm going in the rooms and I'm like, what is going on? And so it's a little, little hyper. And so he goes, why do you want to be a Cleveland firefighter? And I said, I just think it would be a very cool job. I said, it's gotta be different every day. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like burning buildings and it's, it's cool. You know I mean? I was 26 or something. I don't know. I wasn't even, 20. see, I would have been 25 years old. Of course I was saying it was cool. I want to, yeah, I want to be a cool guy. Fine. And he, yeah, exactly. And he's like, so you don't care about the people? And I was like, what people? <laughs> oh, the people we got to go to? Yeah, of course I care. But like, I don't really control that. Like that, I have no control over that. And, and, and I like, so then I had to go to see the other uh, psychiatrist or psychologist rather in Lakewood, Ohio. And I sat down with her and now I'm terrified. This is like a month and a half later. I've been waiting like I, you're getting your second eval. And I'm like, oh, my God, these people think I'm nuts. And I'm, I, I don't think I'm nuts. Of course, nobody's nuts thinks they're nuts. But so I sit down and uh, I, and she's like, are you OK? I said, I said, listen, I'm going to be straight up with you. I'm freaking out because this is what I want to do. Like, I want to be a fireman. 
And she's like, well, we had a long conversation. I told her what happened with the other guy being 40 minutes late. And I said, and to be perfectly honest, I was in a little bit of a tizzy. Like, who the fuck does that? And she kind of laughed and she said, and she says, ask me a couple more questions. It was very, very minor. And she writes down something and I, she said, okay, we're good. And I said, well, can you tell me like how I did, you know, am I crazy? Or you're going to say I'm crazy. And she goes, you know, I'm really not allowed to divulge exactly what I'm going to write here, which puts your heart in your throat. But she goes, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be a Cleveland firefighter. So, um, so, but that was like, going back to where we started with that was you're like, you know, when people th thank me for my service, sometimes it's difficult. And I'm sure you have this too. I appreciate it because I know what Vietnam veterans had to go through when they came back. They didn't get thanked for their service and they got, mm -hmm. actually they got spit on everything else. Exactly. So, so I'm thankful for that, but sometimes I don't know what to say because if people knew what the military did for me, as opposed to what I did in the military, like it's, it's, it's imbalanced. I got so much more out of the military than they could have ever gotten out of me that I go, and I, uh, trust me, I love it when people say thank you, but I also don't want to be, and I have seen those guys that are kind of like that. Oh, look, usually it's those guys that didn't do too much, <laughs> but regardless, um, it, it was one of those things where I just, I, I still struggle. I, I say, thank you. I always say thank you. And then I usually try to have a conversation and be like, you know how good the military was for me or how good it was to me or how, how much it created a good life for me, because I want people to understand that it, it gave to me. So. And that's important. And I'm glad you were humble enough to say that because that, that is the truth though, you know, and it's the same. And again, it's, the decisions that we make of why, you know, the why is always going to be, you know, what leads us to the answer of anything in our lives, you know, whether we choose, you know, our significant other, whether we choose our careers, whether we decide to go jump out in traffic, you know, the why is the answer. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. And it's the, you know, why I enlisted in the Marines was because of camaraderie. I didn't have a family. I needed that sense of belonging. And the, the, the same sense, too, of like, why you want to be a firefighter? Hey, I'll, at least you want to be there and you wanted to, you know, implant yourself into that career and be a part of that. It's vital in, in those answers, you know, and, you know, so many people fall short of that. But again, you know, that whole progressions of the, the why it's the I understood that I was broken and I stepped in and just like, you know, what you said, you know, you want to prove people wrong and you, you know, you wanted that sense of belonging, even though you wanted to be a Marine long before you, I'm not going to say long before, or may have been long before you actually. Well, since I could remember that's not, and that's not a lie. I mean, I remember being five and telling my dad I was going to be a Marine. I think it was because I was being an ass um, <laughs> because I knew it was different than the army, but for real, I remember one time I saw for something in a magazine. Remember when, You'd open a magazine in those uh, recruit and they sent me a like a iron on patch because I was like 13 years old. And I and I was frequently taught like reaching out to the recruiter back then. How can I, you know, like is there any and they're like, oh wait, kid, you're not, you know, not of age <laughs> 12. Now, <go> away. <laughs> of course, when you go into the recruiter's office and they're and they're like trying to give you their pitch, and you're like, Shh, where's the pen? I'll just sign. Um, I think that changed their their minds about you know your attitude, but um it's, you know, when I look at the whole full circle of it, I, I always looked at it like, I can't believe these guys are going to allow me to be with them. 
And I think that that also set me up for some big successes because I was always looking at like, I get to do this or like there's, and the other thing is there's always like a little bit of a, I always tried to find where there was a little bit of a roadblock to get into something different, to do a little bit more, to be a little bit more, not, I don't want to say elite because, you know, like that sounds very pompous, but I didn't want to be the average. I wanted to go a little bit more, do a little bit harder. And so with that mindset, I always felt like I was in the right place and I was getting more. And, and that goes back to, and I'm not, I, I won't try to play the uh, martyr card. I'm, um, what's the word? I'm for me. You know, that, I wasn't a martyr. It was about it's that's vital, and I mean, I'm I'm glad you're opening up and talking about this because, you know, it's the the veterans listing and the ones that you know are still, you know, serving, still active. You know, they they need to hear this because it's going to be that answer as far as the where they see themselves, whether they you know, the ones that are active and they want to, you know, further their career because it's, and again, your gratefulness to the, because it was like your parents really and going in, you know, willing to be a sponge to, you know, be able to receive the knowledge, the guidance that, you know, the Marine Corps and every other Corps, you know, presents to you. It's the, and I believe that is why you're so successful today, you know, because you've been doing things for you because and just like what it is with anything else, if you can't do for you successfully, your fucking family, excuse my language, your, you know, your family, your career, the other people you're trying to mentor, your grow, your children, it, it's going to be for nothing. You know, and you have to be selfish and confident. There's nothing wrong with that. So many people get, you know, a bad rap that, oh, my God, you're arrogant, conceited, and, you know, self, it's. You have to be because if you can't be selfish and want things better for yourself, there's no way on this planet you're going to be the best that you can be for country, for family, for business, for kids or anything else. I want to I want to. I don't typically go here because I don't want to ever put down someone else's service or how they believe that they served. Um, but I do want to go in one direction with that, because what I see a lot of people is they want to. Um, they want to talk about their sacrifice or they want to project <laughs> that they have been some type of martyr. And, and here's, here's what I know from being in the active duty and being in the reserves and being deployed and being around the military <clears throat> for the better part of my life is there are phenomenal people who serve. I don't care if they're in a elite service or a average, you know, like your, your, your ground pounders or your, um, your, uh, headquarters kind of people that are support phenomenal people. And I know a lot of phenomenal people. What I cannot stand is when someone comes and talks about that they've sacrificed or given up um, to, so for other people, because the reality is this, I went in the military because I didn't have a lot of choices. I graduated high school with a 1.71. I was in a town of deadbeats that I was, not, not, I shouldn't say it like that. The whole town wasn't deadbeats. My circle were deadbeats. I, there, I was going nowhere and I was going to get there very, very fast. I had nothing that was promising on my horizon. I didn't have money to go to school and no one was going to help me get any money to go to school with a 1.71 GPA. 
So people, this is kind of going back to when people thank me for my service and I have a difficult time kind of responding sometimes. It's because I think back at all of the reasons I was in. And then when I re-enlisted, I never once held up my hand to re-enlist and say, I'm doing this for the people. Hmm. I was doing this for what I got out of it. And, and I re-enlisted in Iraq and got a, a nice large bonus that was completely tax-free. And that's why I did it in Iraq because it was completely tax-free after I had been stop lost and got that money. Now I could come back and I've seen guys come back and I've seen people come back and say they did this or they did that and sacrifice. And, and I did this for you. And I've even heard police officers say that, um, I'd be willing to die for you. No, listen, nobody's, I'm not willing to die for other people. I'm willing to put myself in a position where that could happen. But not, I don't like it when people have this push of them, like self-martyrdom. Don't do that. There are, and you, and you know, you read about Operation Red Wings and, and that's someone who, truly understood the, the the sense of sacrifice typically the men and women who have that uh, ability to make that claim aren't with us anymore yes, so that's the one thing that really aggravates me about service from some people and again i don't typically go there because most i think most of us have served honestly or, or honorably i should say and they're not looking for that extra pat on the back but that's, well, see, that's, that's the thing though too and i mean that, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up in a very humble way and you know a lot of people are going to take offense to it but you know the vast majority of individuals they take offense to truth in the first place that's why you know we have this organization truth you know to point out the realities you know realities sometimes are very hard you know but in the essence of you know and i'm glad you brought this point up because that's just like with law enforcement okay when when we sign our name on that dotted line, that giving our life, it's, it's a job description. It isn't something that wasn't on that job description. And I right. said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to sacrifice my life so that you can save yours, Sam. That's, that's not part of it. It's a fucking job description. You know, when we sign our line, when, when I sign my name on the, the dotted line for whatever respective jurisdiction that I'm serving, that's my right. job description. Is that you know I'm I'm gonna have to put my life before the civilian sector, flat out. So it's a job description. So I mean, if that does happen during the course of my career, my service, whatever the case is, it, it was part of the job. It isn't that I made a sacrifice. It's I fulfilled my job duties. It's like me employing somebody to come into the office, and their role is to be here from nine to five, you know. And they come in and said, "Well, I got here at eight fifty-five." I mean, look at me. <laughs> right. You didn't do any. That's your job description, you know. And and I don't want to take away. I mean, my love for first responders and especially like with law enforcement, military, is extremely high. But right. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I know. I'm, with, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm with you 100 on that, Sam. I'm never gonna. And that's why I'm glad you brought it up and you said it perfectly. Because it is, it's just a job description. And, you know, a lot of people do get beside themselves and they want that pat on the back that, oh, I did this for you. I did this for country. Yeah, you, we are doing it for country, but the vast majority, and it isn't just you and I and the reasons why we enlisted in the military of, you know, because we were at the bottoms of our life and we wanted something different. Again, 
that service is part of the job description, period. Yeah, I was willing to do that and make it to where it is a sacrifice. I mean, don't get, I'm not taking that part away from right. it, but by all means, it is not something that, you know, a, a sacrifice is somebody seeing a kid about to get hit by a car. They just run out there and grab that kid and they get plowed over. That's a sacrifice. Right. They didn't and sign up for yeah. that. That wasn't part of their job description or anything. They selflessly ran out there and right. put themselves in harm's way, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out. I mean, it was, that was perfect on you bringing that up. And I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, not many people will, you know, and it's, that's a hundred percent truth. And if individuals are, they're going to combat that, I'll probably get hate mail later on, but you know, I'll you be know like, yeah, I, I, because it is a job description. I've never said that in, in a forum like this, but I have said it around, imagine um, some other first responders that I, that I work with or whatever. And they're like, how could you say that? And I'm like, cause I know you and I know me and I know the truth. And <laughs> I forbid if we go into a house and something bad happens and it does, something bad happens. Um, we, you know, we lose people when bad things happen. And I, I know this, I never wanted those bad things to happen to me. So <laughs> I was care, you know, like, I mean, as cautious as you can be in those jobs, but in the same thing overseas, you know, uh, there was a few times where I thought bad things were happening, bad things were happening. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I know this, I certainly didn't want to sacrifice myself if I didn't have to, you know, I, I wanted, I like, I thought about coming back to my boys and I thought about, you know, being on the fire department. I've thought many times about like, there's been a few times when things were a little bit um, scary and I go, hope I get out of this one <laughs> because I didn't want to be the the sacrifice. And because, because I know some, some people who have, and, and um, that's very admirable. And, and some of those people really did go above and beyond. And that's amazing. Um, and then yeah. that, that kind of pinpoints on your point is, you know, which anybody serving in the military and especially the veterans, I mean, the vast majority of us have seen the movie platoon and, I bring that up because it, it, it's it's beautifully written. The whole movie is, and the way that Charlie Sheen is writing the letters home to Grandma, and when he's going over about you know because you look at military back then opposed to now. I mean, the draft was a whole different animal. You know what I mean? Where you had people that didn't want to be there, unqualified people, even people that did want to go, they weren't qualified. So I mean, we have two different animals, but still in the perspective to where the word grunts came to be to where they took the people from, you know, the worst of the worst places that really had nothing and how willing they were to just go out there. Oh yeah. Hey, gun fight. Yeah. Go sign me up. <laughs> it was just, you know, out there and go. But, and, and again, it goes into what you just pointed out, you know, a few times in the sense that when you, when you're coming from nothing and you need that change, sometimes, you know, we look at it as a word as a sacrifice because yeah, we are willing to make a sacrifice in essence, but is it, it isn't a sacrifice to us because we're gaining so much more by the provisions that we're getting, whether it's that sense of family, comradeship, brotherhood, sisterhood, whatever it is, then we are actually giving, you know, and I'm right. glad you pointed that out because it's the, we're always going to get more than we give. I mean, period. I mean, and if, oh, and if oh, it's absolutely. the other way around, something's wrong. You know, well, but it's it, in that part of the grunts that I believe is the reason why it's that why part is that, you know, a lot of people go in there. And then in that book that I was talking about earlier with the um, 
uh, Sebastian Junger war. And he's talking about the, the psychology behind it, about people on the front line, you know, mentally, you know, none of us really think about death or that it even applies to us. So we're running bullets flying everywhere. And it's just like, oh, hey, and, you know, we're not thinking that it applies to us. We're thinking about the poor bastard next to us is going to get shot and killed. Oh, they're about to get shot and killed, you know, but it's uh, that whole mental flush, man. And it's just. Yeah, it, does, it can't happen to me. And I, I and I certainly had that uh, at times. It can't happen to me. I, I had the opposite at times, too. But uh, uh, w w one funny thing that you, you mentioned there, and I, I we can probably put this topic to bed, but the sacrifice we talk about, I remember being at boot camp um, and thinking how good the food was and all these other guys. <laughs> thinking, I'm not, I, this is, I mean, this is that's some real shit. Like people go, this food is horrible. And I was like, and I was 131 pounds and that's I was starving all the time. And this food was amazing. And I was like, these are the best boiled eggs. Ever. Whatever it was, it was the best I ever had because I didn't eat when I was growing up. Like we didn't have meals. I've told the story before. I remember one time I was eating a can of corn and that was dinner. And it wasn't because we couldn't necessarily afford it. A lot of times it was because it just wasn't there. Um, it, it, there was no care taken in that. Um, we would get these big bags of frozen potatoes and, and cook them in lard and french fries and that would be a meal and so you go to boot camp and you're like they're gonna feed us again what are you talking about and there's and, meat on this plate yeah and, and and that's when i learned too how to get through certain things and i have a lot of systems in my mind and i have a lot of i've broken down a lot of things and seer school did that for me and just being miserable at different times did that for me. And I, and I, I would challenge anyone, if you want to be a better person, figure out how to be miserable and live through it. Because I remember being great. in the Marine Corps boot camp and on ship, which might be some of the most boring times in the whole world. If you don't have a job on the ship and we didn't um, live to the next event or, or get through till the next event. And I used, because I, I love food today. I'm a big food person. As you can tell, I'm getting a little bigger, but in the <laughs> military, I really, really appreciated food because growing up, it wasn't there. It was not something that was normal for me. So I always thought, well, they can beat the shit out of us for a few more hours, but then it's lunchtime. And then they can beat the shit out of us for a few more hours, but then it's dinner time. And that was what I always tried to do was look for the next event that was going to give me some kind of relief or some kind of pleasure or some kind of joy or whatever it was to just like I could stop the cycle of whatever. And that was the that's the the good thing about being in America is that it's also the downside. And I tried to explain this to my guys in Afghanistan. Glutton and the, the lack of, you know, we take things for granted over here severely. And it's the. Uh, I told him you're fighting an enemy that doesn't have a date that they're going home. They're not taking leave. I knew when I got to um, Iraq, I left my wife who had a, my oldest son was not quite three yet. And my youngest son was a month old when I left. So I got ranked very high. They did a ranking system for who got to take leave when. Well, because I had a newborn at home, I ranked pretty high on the scale to be able to take leave when I wanted it. Well, I wanted to take it in June because I was going to go to the beach with my family and just try to forget about Iraq before I had to go back to Iraq for six more months. So I split it in the middle. And um, when I would talk to, to my guys in Afghanistan, I was like, here's here's where we lose. We know what time this mission is going to end because we built the mission. 
they don't know when it's going to end and they don't worry about when they're going home and they don't worry about when their mail is coming and they don't worry about when the next meal is coming because they are home. This is where they live. This is where they reside. And I also always wanted to put this in my head. And I, I thought about this when I was even young and I'd watch movies about World War II or Vietnam. And I always sympathize or empathize with the enemy. Not in a, And uh, there's been some great movies that did that much later in life, but I don't recall one when I was younger teaching that or showing that. But I told I told my guys, I said, the reality is this. As much as we think that these guys are evil, the evil face of the world, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, they believe they're right. And you better mm-hmm. understand that when you're fighting someone on their turf, that they believe they're right. You're the oppressor. You're the aggressor. You're the invader. And you want to go home, it can be a really, really bad combo. And I said, you better get it in your head the right way and stop fucking thinking about when you get to go home on leave. Same thing with racism, you know, to where it's that everybody always has that persona about another individual without really understanding what they and how they view it. You know, it's the, oh, well, hey, you're wrong. Again, going back to the nobody likes to be wrong, but it's the, oh, you know, you're wrong. Hey, we wouldn't be over here if you guys were right. (laughs) It's like... Well, and and here's the thing, like, I I also thought about this person that I'm going to shoot at or is going to shoot at me or whatever's going to happen is thinking they're doing the patriotic thing or whether maybe it's a religious thing. Maybe it's maybe it's whatever it is, but they're going home to their family doing the right thing and they're honoring what they believe. And the same as you are now, listen, doesn't doesn't mean I'm going to give them a bit of quarter. It just means. I have an understanding that they believe that they're right. And I hope that they believe there is they're right as much as I believe that we're right. Hmm. You know, another thing too, is like, you know, kind of going back to this whole mentality aspect and the, the sacrifice part of it. Okay. People are going to get pissed at me for saying it like this, but Hey, I, I love realities, but, um, I love Star Wars too, by the way, but, (laughs) but no. So the same way that individuals get stuck with recidivism, going back to prison is the same, same, same aspect as why many, and I mean, many join the military, myself included, join the Marines. Yeah. It's the, I, I wanted that. I wanted the escape from my current life. I wanted what they could provide. And yes, yes, I was willing to sustain any sacrifice that came with that. But it was that that taking care of me aspect of it. Yeah, it was for the growth part of it, but the that that comfort of something that I didn't have back home. The same individuals that continue, 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 continue to go to prison is because of the food. It's because of they don't have to be self-sustaining. They got somebody doing their laundry. They got, I mean, it's the it's that recidivism. And I, I put it in that perspective because it is the same. You know, it's just like an individual chooses a career. Some individuals are career criminals because the the punishment, as we see it, isn't a fucking punishment to them. It's them being taken care of, and they don't care. The same way that somebody doesn't care about any loss they may sustain by joining military, by being deployed, because they 
are in a better situation than they would be if they were not. It's that simple. I mean, some people are going to get pissed off, but that's the that's the reality. That's the truth. So. You with me? I'm I'm listening. Oh, okay. okay. I, no, I, was, I was just sitting here like divulging what, what you know what you just said, and I was like, no, I uh, I think there's so much truth to that that people. I think everybody wants to be well. Humans by nature are lazy and want to be comfortable. That's why success takes a lot of work because you don't call things work that you just love doing. You yes, know? sir. And then so. Now, with that being said, so while you were, was it while you were at the Cleveland Clinic that you began flipping homes or was there a different transition that happened? No, that I would do it to real estate. I was flipping homes uh, like <laughs> when I first got on the fire department, I, it, like something happened that was, I got lucky on a property. I grabbed it flipped it. It was great. And and that was a completely different world back then. We didn't have wholesalers or we certainly didn't have them in this, in this area. We didn't have those kind of, um, that kind of market. So, um, I did that. And then I realized I hated realtors. Um, and, and it wasn't that I hated all realtors, but the realtors I dealt with back then were real estate investment realtors. They were, there was, they only handled REO property. So, your short sales, your foreclosures, bank owned, your sheriff sales, your garbage houses. Now, I, I don't consider them garbage houses at all. That's where the most money can be made. However, in the world of real estate back then, you had real estate agents that put you in the car and drove you to the nice neighborhood and the nice houses and or went and listed your nice home and put it on the MLS. Great. And then you had those guys. And what I found was everyone that I ever worked with would give me the codes to these houses. Um, they never met me before. They weren't going to leave their office to do a damn thing. And then I would go and I would be like, all right, I want to put an offer in for this. They never gave me comps. They never gave me advice. They never, they, they were just like, basically they're working for the bank. And so I would get the HUD, the HUD um, one back then and uh, would read it. And I'd be like, that son of a bitch made five grand off of that deal. <laughs> I so I said, I'm going to become a realtor. So when I came back from Iraq, I immediately signed up for um, uh, real estate classes and I got my real estate license. And obviously in 2008, things changed dramatically in the real estate world. Yes, got very tumultuous. Um, the flipping was kind of crazy for a minute. Uh, then I got sent to Afghanistan. And when I came back from Afghanistan, I joined um, the number one team in Ohio for just residential sales. And I was just cranking deals on my days off from the fire department did that for eight years. I was mentoring people on that team. Um, I was, I was doing a lot of work that I wasn't getting compensated for. Um, and, and good on those owners because they understood how to leverage other people because they were the number one sales team, blah, blah, blah. And when I decided there was a couple things that precipitated me making changes. One was, and this is a big fire department push. I loved going to work every day. And we would get, if I had days off, I would try to scatter my days off because I didn't like being away from the firehouse that much. Um, and I always said, if it ever got to a point where I wasn't excited to get up and go to the firehouse, I would not do a dangerous job that would most likely give me cancer, most likely in my life 10 years earlier than 
me had I not been on the fire department because all the carcinogens that you're exposed to, the sleep cycles, the adrenaline um, pushes that, you know, you imagine you're sound asleep at one o'clock in the morning, the alarm goes off, your body doesn't know what to do with all that adrenaline if you if it turns out to be a false alarm. And there's studies about what it does with the heart, what it does with the brain. So all these all these negatives that can happen to your body. Uh, by the way, it took me a year to learn how to sleep properly again after leaving. So hmm. all of those were acceptable. And I always said they I, I would stay on that job until I didn't love it anymore. And um, we the, the 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 men and women on that job are some of the most amazing people you'll ever met. I always said the smartest people I ever met and the dumbest people I ever met in my life were firemen and Marines, bar none, <laughs> smart, the, both ends of the spectrum and everything in between, black, white, dumb. It's, we, we had a, 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 like, we really have rocket scientists that work on the fire department. My, one of my bosses was a chemist. Uh, like, like these are, extremely brilliant people. We had four doctors that were Cleveland firemen. So they're extremely smart. We also have the other end of the spectrum, but we, we don't need to worry about that. What, what I knew was I love going to work every day and experiencing that. And things changed kind of drastically. Um, when the city, the city always is maneuvering to do something political. And so they, they changed the rules about who they could make a fire chief. And basically it was because the mayor had one guy that they like they were really close friends and he wanted him to be the next fire chief. So they basically changed the city charter to allow them to make a battalion chief, the chief of the division. And it turned out to be a horrible debacle. That guy ended up having he he had to resign or they were they had to fire him. That was his choice. So then the next chief comes in and this guy is probably the biggest asshole loser on the face of the planet. He hasn't he's he's not really qualified to be the chief but more than that he's a horrible person and all he's done is uh he punishes the guys on a daily basis because he, he thinks that's a way to gain respect um Cleveland fire department's about 155 years old in the history of the fire department they've never had a um a vote of no confidence until this guy and the vote was like 673 to 16 vote of no confidence unheard of um the guy is just an absolute terror for the people on the job. I mean, it's in, in the morale is just completely in the gutter. And I said, you know what? All these guys are complaining. Nobody's happy. Nobody's enjoying this. And I'm not going to be in that environment. I'm going to remove myself because I'd rather not be a fireman and remember being a great job than be miserable on a job that I remembered being good. So I left. And that was all of these things culminated at the same time. I left that team um, that I was on in real estate. I stepped out on my own and I left the fire department all at once. And you talk about burning. I, I, I always talk about burning the boats and that's burning the fucking boats because we'll resign. You don't get to resign. Pension, your health care or um, deferred comp, your guaranteed paycheck every two weeks. It's all gone. So you and, better go and, it, and, and that is sacrifice. That I mean, that really is sacrifice. You know, making a sacrifice that you know is going to be best for you, best for your family, best for, I mean, because mental health, like you just said, you know, if you would have stuck with that, being miserable, having to deal with, you know, 
I'm sure everyone can relate to a career, a job they've not even really a career or a job they've had in their life to where, you know, going in, you know, made them a worse person than not going in, you know, and that plays a big role in the psych. And, you know, that's stepping in. That's a sacrifice knowing that I have so many guarantees if I'll make myself mentally unstable or just miserable all the time. That's a sacrifice to say, hey, you know what? I'm willing to care about myself enough to step out. And, you know, again, because of the drive that you've had through your entire career since childhood to be able to better yourself, you did that. So it's the that's why I, I love having this conversation and, you know, going over the progression from one to the next, because it's vital in that decision to go from one to the next because you see so many individuals and i'm sure there's many now that are still at cleveland fire you know holding on specifically so that they don't lose those comps you know and it's and it's a shame because you know when they step out you know they're going to be enjoying those comps in that retirement like damn i should have left that place 15 years ago <laughs> I, I, I see it all the time and i have some great friends there and we talk about it, and they said you're so lucky that you were able to leave and i and i'm I never want, you know, I never want to discount somebody else's situation. But I'm like, people think I'm lucky because I had some <laughs> magical something going on and I didn't. I was like, I just decided that was my luck. I just decided. And people are like, I wish I could do that. Well, guys that I got on with, they were like, man, you had 17 years on. No, I had 22 years on. If you really want to count the military time I had because I bought it, I would be retiring ne- uh, in December of this year with a full retirement. And I walked away and someone says, you can't do three more years. And I said, I'm not going to do three more years. It's I, can't, I just don't want to. Yeah. Because I was like, here's the thing. You're going to live once. And I don't want to look back and go, you know, I really wish I would have taken the opportunity to leave and just make something else work when I loved the fire department, because now I look at those guys and they're great. Listen, wonderful people. However, I, I I wonder what damage they've done to their psyche or their family psyche by being in a miserable situation. And it's huge. And I'm glad you just said it in that context about their family psyche, because you look at a vast majority of individuals that are miserable at fucking work. They're going to come home and what are they going to do? They're going to take it out on their family. And it's unfortunate. And a lot of individuals don't think about it like that because they think they're doing it for the better of their family because of that I guess the long-term part, the, the comps, the retirement, everything else, oh, I'm doing this for the family. I'm sacrificing for the family. You know, you're, that's not a sacrifice that is a positive one. You know I mean? When you, cause you're damaging the family. Like you just said, I'm glad you, you know, put it again, that you put it in that context because it is damaging, you know, and then what's going to happen is let's say that it's two years prior to retirement, all of a sudden their spouse steps out on them or, you know, certain abuses mentally or anything else from like the children or anything else. It's, it's a, an effect that you'll never be able to salvage, you know, and it's, you know, understanding that and, you know, said it in the beginning, and I'm going to say it again now about, you know, you haven't been, it's important to be selfish, you know, and that's why I commend you on your selfish decisions because in your selfish, in your selfish decisions, you know, you've made the life for yourself. You've made the life for your family. You've made the life for, you know, your team members at EXP Realty and everybody, you know, the other events that you do in the life and business coaching, you know, and it's the, it's vital. 
you know, and that's why I want to have this conversation with you, you know, because the viewers, they do need to hear things like this because it may be somebody that is stuck in their career that is dragging them down and they, they may be trying to convince themselves that it's worth staying there because of the comps, because of the health insurance, because of whatever excuse you want to say of why you're sticking in there when it's the, there's other opportunities out there. And especially like, you know, people complain about COVID and everything else to where it has opened up so many opportunities for so many individuals to advance themselves, but everybody wants to use it as a, a, a card. They're using that as a card now as an excuse of why they're not doing the fucking work period. Yeah. You know? And <clears throat> so it's the, I'm, I'm glad you put it in that context. I mean, that's beautiful as far as like the family psyche, because it's kind of completely disregarded. You know, everybody always wants to think that they're doing it for family. And it's the complete opposite. You're doing it and destroying family, you know, so. And then now, how long have you been doing the uh, uh, Homes for homes for Heroes? Yeah, uh, I, I do I do something called Heroes at Home. And Heroes so at been, Home, I'm sorry. Heroes at Home, yeah, I do that. I've done that um, almost three years. And the reason I'm doing it is I was a member of Homes for Heroes, uh, I, and I just – um, I just didn't believe in the way things worked. That's my opinion. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't see a model that I wanted to be a part of anymore. So I said, I, I don't care about making money on this. I make money. Um, I have my hands in plenty of things that, that make revenue and I'm always looking for more. What I really want to do is things that I know matter to me and matter to the people that they will involve. So heroes at home is, um, it's a charity here in Medina. Um, we have, uh, we have a good amount of, um, homeless people that make up. I, I read this morning actually that, um, veterans make up almost 20% of the homeless population. However, they don't make up 20% of the population. And I always think when when we look at when we look at statistics, it's so easy to to say, well, one in five. I mean, I guess that makes sense. That's what someone may say. But when you realize that less than two percent of the population are veterans, or they're making up twenty percent of the homeless population, something isn't right there. And, and so I go, what can we do to help it? Well, I don't know what we can do nationally. I don't know what we can do even in small sectors, but I know what I can do in my very own hometown. And that is we create ways to partner with other organizations to here's the problem with homelessness and the way we attack it. And it's the same way. I work a lot with feeding Medina County um, and it's because they feed kids and it just, it just really warms my heart. But what I realize is a lot of times we control symptoms or we address symptoms. Um, I, that's very clear to me in the medical community today. It's very clear on how we, uh, how we address fiscal um, intelligence in, in, in our own bank accounts and in, in our government bank accounts. And then I look at it from the homeless stance and I go, especially homeless veterans. I feel for any homeless person. I understand that there's probably a lot of mental instability that comes along with it. And I think they feed on each other. I don't know enough about that outside of the, the, the veteran population. I know this typically what we do, and it's the same thing when I got out, when, both when I came back from Iraq and when I came back from Afghanistan, remember, I'm a reservist. So I didn't have to go back to active duty. 
And you know what they told everyone? Take a year off and collect your unemployment. Huh. Go to the VA and make this claim and this claim and this claim and this claim because you're entitled to those. Now, a couple trains of thought there. One is if someone's suffering, then they are entitled to have that suffering made whole. I believe that wholeheartedly. If you go over to Iraq and you come back with PTSD or you come back with a hearing deficiency or you come back injured in some way and you're not the person you were and you fought for the country, then you absolutely are entitled to those benefits. And I believe that those caretakers have the best intentions at heart. The problem is they tell everyone to go do this thing. And I said, Jesus, I took like 30 days off when I came back from Iraq and my wife was like, you had better go to work or something bad is going to happen in the house because I'm tired of you, <laughs> you know, um, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a animated person. Regardless, what you're telling these very young people to do is go away for a year or six months or whatever it is into a combat zone, high stress, even if they don't ever see combat, it's still away from their norm. And then you're telling them to come home where they're separated from all the people that they've lived with for the last six, eight, 10, 20 months, whatever it is, and forget all about that. And then don't do anything to occupy your mind. By the way, you may have seen some trauma. You may have seen this or that. So now what do we do? That's when the person starts to do what? They don't, they're not gainfully employed. They're not gainful, gainfully engaged in anything positive. So that's when they start drinking. And that can lead to, and I don't care what anybody says about gateway or not gateway, but I do know that a lot of times substance abusers step it up. And I will never say that one will lead to another. I just know that when you get into those realms, it can compound. So now we have these veterans that are no longer gainfully employed, engaged in any positive way, and they develop substance abuses, and then maybe they burn bridges because maybe they are dealing with um, uh, different uh, PTSD issues and things of that nature, and then they calm down. So what happens? Now they're homeless. And... Nobody's addressing those issues. So what I want to do is I want to partner with the organizations that can get them the help that they need and not just, so I do this turkey drive and it's something that, um, not to get too far off topic, but something um, that I think is very similar is I do a big turkey drive every year. This is my seventh year doing it. I started doing it by accident and we collect turkeys for a day. Um, I promote it. I'm promoting it now. I do these 50-50 raffles. By the way, if anybody wants to connect with me, I have a, a website you can go to and get the 50-50 raffle. Regardless, I try to raise money. Um, what is that What is that website real quick? Hold on for one minute. Uh, I'll link it up there because it's um, it's on, it's on – go to feedingmedinacounty.org and you'll find it. Okay. That's feedingmedinacounty.org. But my thing is this. I'm going to collect this money – and I'm going to collect these turkeys. And what we do is Wednesday the 17th, we'll collect them. Um, Thursday morning, 5 a.m., we show up at the fairgrounds and we do our big food distribution. It's the week before Thanksgiving, right? So now what I've done is I've plugged a tiny hole. These people are able to have um, they're able to have a turkey dinner that day. They're able to, you know, like, does it change anything? No, it doesn't. But what it does is it gives people, the, other people, the opportunity to see what's happening at Feeding Medina County and what they're, 
what their volunteerism does. And it, and it shows how many children are going hungry in Medina on a daily basis, how many uh, seniors are not eating on a daily basis here in Medina County. So, so it's the same thing with the homelessness. You can't address the symptom without getting to the root of the problem. So when I do these things, it's really about just drawing attention to it and then trying to find the resources for them to solve the problem. And it, it's how I try to approach everything is there's there's a bigger there's something bigger at play. How do we address it? So and they're able not, to donate right here as well, too. Yep. Okay. yep. So, what's, so to get, what's to get involved? What's to get involved uh, button? So, well, it's just so cool. I, man, we could go into this and be there for a while, but um, one of the, well, it's they, important. They, I mean, I'd like to, I mean, spend as much time on them. Please don't feel, you know, time restricted. If you want to take a break, you can take a break and stuff like that, but you know, please don't feel time restricted. Or if you do have things to do, I mean, we can kind of, you know, do things in briefing, but you know, things like this, it's important because again, I mean, the progression of your life and the things that, you know, you have done the things that you continue to do in the betterment of the quality of life for individuals, for families, it's, it's important, it's vital. And I, I commend you for this. And I mean, I want people to get involved in things like this because it goes a long way. And, you know, what you've done in the past, what you continue to do and, you know, how you're encouraging other individuals to be a part of this and make a difference. So, you know, the same instance that we just had that conversation about people you know, self-gloating, talking about all the sacrifices that they've made, you know, well, hey, here's a way to make a sacrifice that isn't asking too much from you to where you really can improve the quality of life and benefit somebody that really is, you know, down and out in life and stuff. So. Well, one of the big things that they do that I love that they do is they do what's called weekender bags. And that's so you have children that are on reduced or free lunch, right? So we're making sure the county's making sure that those children have nourishment on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, what happens on Saturday and Sunday. And so where organizations like this pick up at Feeding Medina County, they're just wonderful people. What they do is they, um, they take in more donations and then they make these weekender bags. So those children can take those bags home on the weekend. And there's, it's a, there's a science behind it. It has very, um, very specific, this protein, this much carbs, this much, you know, like it's a science that this is what they need for the weekend to sustain. Give them the bag, they go home. It can't weigh more than seven pounds. There's a few stipulations. So one of the things that companies can do around here is they can bring their whole organization to go pack those weekender bags because they pack them every single day of the week. So that way they can go out on Fridays to the, to the kids that um, are in need. And this is one of many things that they do. It's just one of my favorite things to do because I do recall being a very young child and being hungry. I recall being hungry at school. I recall being hungry at home. And I go, nobody cared or I'm sure people cared if they knew. So my, my process behind all this is just, what can I do? The Turkey drive, I blow it up. I make this big thing out of it. Everybody's like, Oh, you're doing so good. And I'm like, I just want you to look at what feeding Medina County does. And I get to do it for one day. It's not, it's not much work. I get way more credit for it than deserved, but because I ask for sponsors and these sponsors pay, I don't, it doesn't cost me anything, but a little bit of time and people are like, Oh, that's so cool. I'm like, Oh no, no. Who cares about the Turkey for the day? That's the easy part. I got to feed someone one day. No, let's, let's figure out how to solve these problems. So that's why I like um, organizations like this. And it's the same approach I have to the heroes at home. 
We have people in our own communities that are homeless through no fault of their own. Oftentimes it has something to do with their military service. How do we point them in the right direction and get them the help that they need so they can be functioning, productive members of society? Because homeless people, if they don't have a mental disability, don't want to be laying in the street and not productive and not a part of society. Now, mental health is a whole nother issue I can't touch because I'm not qualified to. But I know this, if you have veterans that are homeless and they don't have the resources, then that's where they're going to be. But if we have the resources and we can get them there, then we can solve that problem. And, and that's all I look to do is how can we make those connections to the right resources? Hmm. That's amazing. And then, so how, how long has the, the feeding Medina uh, County been around and doing what they're doing? And I mean, how much growth since you've been a part of it and contributing, have you seen through the course of you know time? It, it's been, uh, they've been around uh, a little over 10 years and I don't know the exact date, so don't quote me, but they went from like this little tiny, they were in a, a national guard armory this little thing over here. And then they went to another building and now they're in a huge building um, and they serve every single school in all of Medina County. And, and, and that's pretty amazing. They partner with the Akron food bank. Um, it, it's just, you know, when I look at, when I look at these situations and how they're able to plug those gaps, it's pretty amazing. And it's, it's amazing how they have all the resources like like this form right here to fill out to where you know all the links are in one place for them to be able to receive you know the services products that you know they need to sustain their families it's amazing well what, one thing and i like that it's called truth the the i've had people when i'm collecting turkeys or when i'm do i do a, a few other things for feeding medina county and i i've had people come up and say you know if if they just didn't smoke they could buy their kids food and i go that's true and awesome that you pointed out that you want to punish that kid because the parent smokes. I don't care. I, like, I can't stop the parent from spending money unwisely. Well, like, that's not my, that's not my, my intent. That's not my ability. So I go, what can I do? I can make sure that kid gets fed. hundred percent. And then now, going into the real estate aspect of it. So on your site right here for EXP Realty, mm -hmm. I, know, I, I know it was a big shift right there. <laughs> but uh, so I know you're building your team. Is it something that you bring realtors on as well? Or do you have assistance ones that go find homes for you to list? Or so what's what's the whole what's, I believe what's your process? I believe I run my team like no other team ever. I hope I do. Um, I, I won't even call it a team. I call it Marathon Group. And if you notice, this is my only web page. I don't have Marathon Group as a web page. I don't produce leads. I don't buy leads. I don't sell my team leads. I What I do is I try to empower other real estate agents. And, and being at EXP has been a, a phenomenal change for me because it gives me opportunity that I never had before. So what I look at is, 
you want to come and be my name for eight years. I was on the number one team in Ohio. And guess what I got out of it? Nothing. I wasn't in the MLS for eight years because my, all my deals were going in someone else's name. So I said, let's, let's teach realtors the right way to run a business because most realtors want to throw their hand up and say, I'm an entrepreneur. And I'm like, no, you're not because you're a shitty employee and you would fire yourself in five minutes. So let's, let's try to get, gap that. So I have 19 people in my group and to be in my group, I, there, there's not even a contract. All we do is we say, if you want transaction coordinator, I have them right here. And what we do with the transaction coordinators is you pay me $350 a deal. I don't take any part of your um, commission. I don't do, you know, like, and I'm not saying it's wrong to do that because there's teams that do that and they're extremely successful. I don't want to be liable for your deals. I don't want to, I don't want to do your deals with you that way. What I want to do is provide all the resources. So I provide the signs, the lock boxes, the office space, the printing, the, the, um, transaction coordination, the admin and all of those things. And then I coach right here in my office um, twice a week. And then any, if you want more coaching, call me, we, we will do zoom calls. I'll do as much as I can. All of my, I have a bunch of online programs that I've built. Um, they're, they're free to anyone that joins my, my group. And in turn, you pay me 350 bucks a transaction so we can have all these things. I'm not making any money off of this. This basically is covering my overhead. So, where I make the money is on the residual income, as you know, at EXP right. in the downline. And so it's a win-win where I don't have to take anything from the realtor to be able to, to grow and be a part of this. And to date we've had one realtor leave and she came back. So. Awesome. And then, so, you know, on the screen now, the marathon group reality right there, is that where, so, like the individuals viewing, you know, a lot of the individuals viewing right now are on Facebook. So is this where they can? Yeah. But if you click, if you tap that in, it goes to the same page that you just saw. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Again, I'm not, uh, I don't want to lay claim to things that aren't mine. I don't want to, I don't, a lot of these, here's what happens a lot of times with these larger teams too is, and they even told me, and, and, and I'm not going to dispute their business practices because they're good business practices for those people. But when we would have a brand new real estate agent that had never done a deal before and they were like, what do I tell my buyer? What do I tell someone if I go on a listing appointment? And one of the owners would say, well, you, you don't have any stats anyway. You show them our stats and you are this. And I was like, I just don't want to do that. I just don't. I just want to be who I am and I want to do it my way. And I want to tell you, this is what I I have this red wall and all this stuff behind me. And there's a couple of reasons. One is because I like it. And two is that's who I am. I'm loud. I'm. What is it? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm opinionated. I'm, I'm the person that I am. And if that turns someone off, I don't want to be neutral. And, and I don't, I'm not out here to turn people off, but I'm not out here to fool you into thinking that I'm someone that I'm not. So if you need the polished three piece suit, Mercedes driving realtor, I will give you a card of someone here in my office. That's that guy. And he's phenomenal. If, if you need this guy, that's who I am. And I say, just go be genuine and you'll win. And that's important though, as well too, though, you know, because, of, because of that transparency and knowing who you're dealing with is important, especially in the realtor realm. 
if you will. Yep. You know, be, because it's that, you know, that honesty to where, hey, look, the income's going to come regardless, you know, but in the same sense, I'm, I do want to put you in the best situation, whether that's for, you know, the potential home buyer or whether that's for, you know, the realtors, whether they be starting out or whether they're, you know, the seasoned veterans and had the experience, you know, and, and that's important for, you know, individuals to understand with you being, you know, a coach, a leader, mentor, everything else in between that if they want what you have, they're, they're going to have to follow the steps. And that's that, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves working for organizations that, you know, we don't necessarily agree with their practices and things like that, but that's the beauty of, you know, being able to be our own individual within those organizations, because then we can take the practices that we'd like to see fit and apply it to what it is that we do and how we, you know, guide the others too. So that's another, you know, important aspect too on, you know, individuals that want to work with you because at least they know that they're going to be receiving the training, the guidance, everything else right. based on what you've seen and what you've been able to develop and things. So. Absolutely. So Michael, I am a, I'm a little bit pressed on time here. My attorney has walked in my office and he's got a stack of papers in his hand right there. Got to love the attorneys. <laughs> he's a good friend. And, uh, and we've just got to get through a couple of things, but oh, uh, oh, that's, that's, that's right. I appreciate your time. I mean, Hey, thank you for your service, Sam. And your hey, thank you for, thank, you for, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for yours, Michael. And uh, hey, um, we'll connect yeah. after this. But uh, I, I really enjoyed the time we got to chat. Yeah, and we're gonna do this again too. You know, because like a lot of the different viewers, once they view it, you know, a lot of people have a hard time trying to, you know, comment live for some reason because like how I use the stream, utilize the Streamyard. It's not like Facebook Live. That way right. I can actually do the things that I do. But, you know, I'll, I'll get it to where I'll, I'll make a post to where individuals are able to actually ask comment or make comments, ask questions and things like that as well, too, outside of like the private messages. But thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to, you know, doing this again. And, you know, you are the other half of this. So, you know, stay blessed, stay safe in all things, brother. All right, brother. I appreciate it. Yes, sir.